page fright is recorded on the traditional unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Welcome back to Page Fright. My name is Andrew French. I'm on Twitter at the Andrew French, and this, of course, is the only literary podcast in the entire universe that I host. And I am thrilled to have you back with me again this week. It's been two weeks since the last episode. I keep doing this where I say it feels like forever when it's been two weeks since the last episode, but it really does. I think I always forget how much these interviews mean to me, how much I enjoy doing them, Um, and so it means a lot that people keep tuning in to listen to these conversations, because I think they're useful conversations and really important ones, um, especially for emerging writers who might be looking to get their start, even for those who have been working at writing for for quite a while. um, It's useful to be listening in and and be talking to um, the people that I do, and and so especially for me, I'm really, really thankful to have the chance to do this, um, and it means a lot, so thank you for tuning in. Um, that's kind of my, I guess it's becoming a regular thank you at the start of the episode. Uh, and so without further ado, we may as well jump in. Uh, today we're going to be talking to Betsy Warland about her new collection, Lost Lagoon, Lost in Thought. If you're wondering who Betsy is, I don't know what you've been doing because Betsy's been around for a while. She's published 12 books of poetry, creative nonfiction, and lyric prose, including her best-selling 2010 book of personal essays, Breathing the Page, Reading the Act of Writing. In April of 2016, Oscar of Between, a memoir of identity and ideas, was launched by Caitlin Press's new imprint, Dagger Editions. Reviews have called it an achievement, truly luminous, and a tour de force. In 2013, Warland created a new publishing template called Oscar's Salon, an interactive salon that features excerpts from her manuscript, Oscar of Between, guest writers and artists' work. The salon also includes a featured reader each month, as well as readers' comments. You can check all that out at BetsyWarland.com, which is linked below. Warland also co-founded with Myrna Kostash the Creative Writers Nonfiction Collective in 2004 that holds an annual conference for creative nonfiction writers. You can find out about that at creativenonfictioncollective.ca. She also founded and is a mentor in the one-on-one six-month International Vancouver Manuscript Intensive Program. Another link for you is to vancouvermanuscriptintensive.com if you want to find out more about that. Um, An incredible writer, honestly. Warland received the Mayor's Arts Award for Literary in Vancouver in 2016. In 2017, she was the Lyric, Prose, and Poetry Mentor for the Writer's Studio at SFU. A professional manuscript consultant and editor for the past 30 years, Betsy Warland works with writers from across Canada and abroad. It meant a lot to me to have a chance to speak with uh, with Betsy. Um, She has been a big figure in the Vancouver writing community for quite a while and so it means a lot to have the chance as somebody who's sort of using this podcast as a way to meet people in the Vancouver writing community and indeed the Canadian writing community because so much of it is online now. Uh, It it means a lot to be able to talk to somebody like Betsy who has so much experience um, and the fact that she's willing to sit down with somebody like me with very very little experience um, quite frankly means the world to me. Um, So I'm really excited to share this episode as always. Um, Her book, Lost Lagoon, Lost in Thought, is out now with Caitlin Press. It was a delight to read and a delight to talk about, and I could not be more excited to be sharing this interview. Without further ado, let's jump right in. Mm -hmm. 
virtually again today, this time with Betsy Warland. Betsy, how's it going? Uh, how's it going? It's going. <laughs> yes, it's, it's going. going. Yeah, we're all trying to stay safe and almost more importantly, it seems sane yeah. during these times. Um, and so hopefully talking about poetry today and writing in general uh, mm-hmm. will allow us to do that. Uh, you've got a new book out. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about this collection? Yes, it's um, called Lost Lagoon, Lost in Thought, uh, and it's prose poems, and it's, um, I think there are 51, there's a poem that is a, a, a sort of a, a um, kicks it off, um, and then there's, I'm just looking at the book, there's 55, um, no, 54 pieces that are about Lost Lagoon, which is in Stanley Park. Uh, I, I moved here about six or seven years ago, but I've been coming to the lagoon for a, a long time. But I've become much closer since I I'm, I'm literally live about 200 feet away from it. Um, and then at the end, there's a postscript um, that, uh, so it's kind of bookended by this initial poem and then this postscript. Um, and there's 55, 54 pieces. And um, what else? There, oh, I think what really prompted it for me is I was very happy to be so close to nature again. I grew up in nature. It basically was my, um, it raised me. <laughs> and, um, and, but it's really different living so close to the forest and the lagoon and being there at all times of days and in, in, in the night. Um, I can hear it. It'll wake me up sometimes. The owl will be on the prowl or uh, coyote or something, and the uh, the geese and every they get all an alarm, you know. And so I can it, it will awaken me even in the night. And um, what's really f- intrigued me was that this there are this is what the West End is still one of the most densely populated areas in North America, and there are a number of high rise apartment buildings that are just across the street from. Stanley Park, and then a low, older low rises, which I'm in. Um, so you have this very intense urbanization right next to um, wildlife, and way more wildlife than um, the average person actually realizes. So um, yeah, yeah, that's that's, and it's uh, there are prose poems. I haven't worked in that form form for quite a long time, and it was really fun to work in it again. Yeah, I am so excited to jump into, you mentioned some really cool details about the book that I want to talk about, but for people who might be unfamiliar with your work, could I get you to read a piece to start us off? Yes, I'll, I'll, I'll start, I'll read the first piece, which um, which just came to me. I didn't, I did I wasn't um, intending to write this book, and I find that those are the best books of mine, is that I haven't intended to write them, <laughs> and they, they, they hunt me down, and... Um, so this came to me, um, and it, it's the opening of Lost Lagoon. It eventually became clearly the opening. So this is number one. And I should just say that the narrator is called the Human, capital T, capital H, and we can talk about that after. The human is at a loss for words, considers, and considers, wonders. Is this loss of words perhaps why the human is a writer? The desire to describe something that the human cherishes makes words scatter like a flock of startled bush tits. The very word cherish is suspect, passé. 
Okay, the human thinks again. Let's begin with its name, Lost Lagoon. Its very name is a conundrum. How can one misplace a lagoon? Standing on the shore, any passerby can observe it's not a lagoon, but a small lake or perhaps a pond. Over the decades, the human has walked around the lagoon, chatting with various companions, but now dwelling close to it, lives with it. The difference between around and with. Difference between pointing with a camera, voice, or index finger and standing still, watching, listening, sniffing, occasionally speaking softly or returning a bird's call. Just across the street from the high and low-rise buildings, cheek and jowlness, lost lagoon life is once again, the human is at a loss for words. The lagoon resists being depicted, summed up. The human admires this. That's so cool. Um, thank you so much for reading that for us. Um, I do want to ask, I mean, you mentioned the human as narrator. I definitely picked up on that when I was reading and wanted to uh, talk a little bit about that. Would you mind just talking a little bit about that choice to have this figure as the narrator? Yes. Or speaker, I guess. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, in the last few books, I've been exploring a narrative position like um, that um, seems... Um, particular to what the narrative is about. So I'm always working in a book-length narrative. Um, and so, as I said, this came to me right away um, when I wrote this first prose poem. And I think what changed for me here, as contrasted, which I mentioned a bit in that first poem, um, I switched from... Um, sort of just, you know, moving qu quickly through uh, and around the lagoon to actually spending a lot more time with it at various times of day and night. And, um, and that brought me back to how I grew up, which was um, spending a lot of time in nature by myself and spending a lot of time listening and watching and observing it. And... Um, it basically was my, as I said, in a sense, it raised me and it was my teacher. And um, we're so, we're so, um, we've done so, so much damage to nature and we're in such an, uh, a critical point, of, point in, re in relationship to it. And so I wanted to be honest about what how we tend to be in nature which is capital t capital h the human and you know so when i'm there i'm not betsy i'm not she or even he i'm here comes the human you know and so and we have that relationship to nature capital t capital h you know we are um uh, the sort of um masters of nature um so I wanted that position to be um, marked very honestly and accurately and then kind of sort of uh, explore that 
through the narrative as the human becomes more and more um, sort of imbued by the lagoon and recedes more and more into this very uh, gentle, uh, um, admiring kind of position, um, knowing that we can, that, I, that, the, that, the, that we can never sort of disappear in terms of, um, there's always that alertness when we're there. You know, whether it's plants, which they've, and trees, they've, you know, they've now have scientific evidence of this. Um, and certainly any mammals or um, birds, or, we're, they're, they're constantly aware when we're, we're uh, nearby. So just that, that sort of skewed relationship was very interesting to, to me. And it was interesting, too, also, because when I first started sewing a few of the first pieces to my what I call my first readers, some of them just really liked it and got it right away, and some really did not like it. Um, hmm. It really threw them off, and they um, wanted it to be I or Betsy. And so that was interesting. So I had to actually address it a couple times through the course of the book, um, why the narrator is called a human. Uh, yeah, it's so interesting, to too. Yeah. It's it's so cool to take it out of the human perspective too to look at almost the human removed from this figure, yeah. um, and and it kind of flips our position on the on its head as readers, yeah. um, in a really interesting way. So I, I really enjoyed that. I thought it was really cool. Oh good. Um, yeah, and uh, I wanted to ask too about writing prose poems, a full collection of prose poems. Um, obviously, you've written in a lot of different styles over your career. Um, but what was it about the prose poem that worked with, or maybe didn't work at times, with the area of Lost Lagoon? Well, it's interesting because, to be honest, um, I wasn't calling it prose poems until the 11th hour um, with, with my publisher. I, I, and my dilemma as a writer is... Um, I, I work in Nick's genre. I, I always I have for decades. And so um, for the last quite a while, I've been referring to myself more as a creative nonfiction writer. And I helped, I was one of the co-founders of the Creative Nonfiction Collective, which is now in its 15th year in the country. Um, and creative nonfiction is great. Like it's, it's the only genre really where there's this, it's wide open and there's this, this whole kind of creating it and experimenting in it. And it's really exciting to be in, but in terms of um, marketing book, our marketing book, even finding an ISBN number that's going to fit it. It just does. It's just not on the page or on the scene hmm. in that kind of uh, official way yet. Um, so uh, my actually the my the, the term I would I'm most comfortable with is lyric prose and that's what I feel most accurately describes the way I write and I have been writing in that for a long time. Um, so, but with this one because it's in these these uh, in, you know short installments they're running anywhere from a sort of a, a quarter of a page to two or three pages long. Um, I felt that actually that was more of an accurate description of, of the narrative and how it moves. And uh, you can hold these pieces like you can hold them as poems, you know? Uh, so 
and there was, you know, when I first moved to Vancouver, uh, which is a long time ago now, like uh, end of the 70s, early, maybe 80, 81, um, prose poetry, uh, prose poems were quite, were quite common then. Um, and I really enjoyed them. And I worked in them off and on. But they kind of, they sort of, sort of um, receded into history, mostly. And I think they're a great, they're a great form to work in. Um, so to me, a line is a line, whether it's a sentence or a poetic line. And I'm always working with a sentence in a poetic sense, with a poetic sensibility. Um, so it felt like the right, right term, term for them. And I'm, I'd, I'd love to see more poets writing prose poems because they, they give you a certain different kind of latitude um, than a lyric poem. And so uh, I, was, I feel it's, it is the right term for them. But it was like really the 11th hour <laughs> um, <laughs> because I actually don't fall into any one category of a genre. I just don't. So, yeah. Interesting. Um, I am wondering, and maybe this, well, it kind of, it kind of relates to the idea of genre, but, um, more so to finding inspiration. In fact, that is essentially the question I have for you from my last guest, who was Yvonne Blomer. Um, <laughs> she didn't know that I'd be interviewing you, um, <laughs> but she wanted to know from my next guest, yes. how you find inspiration when you're starting a new piece. That's easy. It finds me. <laughs> <laughs> um, interesting oh it's so true uh now i know this varies from writer to writer um but i'll i'll be bold and say but essentially i think this is true for all writers um we call it things we call it muse we call it you know a whole variety of things but for me the, the best writing that i have done it as i said in the beginning it finds me and uh I really feel sometimes hunted down. <laughs> there are things I have not wanted to write, you know, for years. And it just, it just keeps, you know, hunting me down. And so when I finally say, okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll give this a little go and see what happens. Um, then there is this kind of kinetic thing that happens. And uh, I, um, my son teases me and says, this is West Coast flaky, although he's getting a little bit more interested in this now. He's 22. Um, um, I actually feel, with the, what, in my writing anyway, what I write, um, particularly, I'll say books, I feel in some kind of, um, I don't know how to describe this, but on some kind of abstract but essential level, and both those words are problematic, but I can't think of anything better, it already exists that the, 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 the piece, the poem, uh, the creative non-book, uh, fiction book, the novel, uh, it already exists. And really what we're doing is um, learning how to follow it and listen to it. Um, so when I'm working with writers, I always say the narrative is the boss. It knows where it's going. And if we get in the way, it'll go flat. Um, so uh, it won't cooperate. <laughs> Some writers have gone on for 150 pages doing that. Really good writers, like well-known writers I've talked to in this country. And they had to throw out those 150 pages in a novel, right? So we, you, can, you can kind of get into that sort of uh, mindset um, and dominance in a way, here's the, the human again, that um, really uh, reduces the... the uh, 
the quality of the writing and the impact of the writing. So yeah, it, it, I didn't, as I said, I didn't expect to write that first piece and it just came to me and it came almost already formed. Um, I didn't still know I was writing a manuscript that took still a while. Um, but I kept writing those pieces and, um, yeah. So I think that's, that's my West coast flaky. Um, it already exists. <laughs> <laughs> it already exists. So the, the, uh, where I think we get in trouble is trying to force inspiration. Um, you know, in artificial ways, um, you can certainly write, you can do it, um, but it will not have the kind of vibrancy and it won't have a depth if we do that. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me then I, I want to know, like if you have an idea, say let's, let's run with the idea for the first poem that, that you read off the top here. Um, when you get this idea, how do you go about finding a form that fits the narrative? What is that selection process like? Um, it takes a while, usually. Uh, what I'm most interested in is working with the line. And I work in installments. I've done that for quite a long time now. It started with my... Um, 20 years ago, I wrote, wrote Bloodroot. And it's actually going to be reissued this fall with a 30-page essay by me re-entering the book 20 years later, which has been incredible. And this was a a memoir, but it's a lyric prose memoir. There's a lot of white space on on the pages here. It's really paced like music. Um, And when my agent said, nobody's going to give you that much space for prose. Uh, They will poetry. This is a 200-page book. And so I put it back in... uh, I put it into uh, run-on with asterisks between each ent- entry, gave it to my first readers, and uh, they could not read it. That had never, ever happened. And I just thought, <laughs> I have to go back to how I had it. It's quite intense. It's about the last year of my mother's life, and we had been really quite estranged. And my finding, just gradually discovering how to bridge that, um, and it's about what happens when the person who taught you language and story is dying and you're a writer. It's a weird experience. Um, and there mm. were also subterranean narratives that really shaped our relationship and each other that I didn't know about and I was just gradually learning about. Um, so it, it has, uh, some of, on some of these pages, um, there's just one sentence. This is one example. There are no words for where my mother went. And this is when she was starting to starve and starting to go into a whole other consciousness, uh, moving toward her death. And um, so this, this book taught me about pacing, which I think is really, really important, and we don't talk about it nearly enough in writing. Um, and so when the pacing was wrong, people couldn't read it. I sent them the same manuscript in, I mean, not a period was changed. The only thing was I re, <laughs> re-scored it in how it had been written and paced, and they couldn't put it down. That's the difference. That's so interesting. What a cool, uh, almost like an experiment there to to have that uh, yeah. group of people react to your work in that way. It's and they've so been cool. my first readers for years, you know. And so I, I, that book really, that brought me home. This is my form. This is my form. Installments, but it's a book-length narrative. And the installments vary in length and vary in, in sort of 
texture and and uh, what they're about uh, and mood and all that stuff. But it's one story. It's a, and um, I think I, I'm interested in that because, in a sense, for me, it's closer to how narrative functions in our actual lives. Uh, we don't have um, these beginning, you know, uh, plot uh, rise and and the end, <laughs> you know, in our lives. Yeah. That's not the way we live. You know, that's the way we not the way we think. And so um, I feel this is closer to how narrative actually happens in our lives. And I had many, many people who are very conventional readers who got this book and felt really troubled initially by it. And then, you know, very shortly, absolutely loved it. They got it. It just suddenly resonated. But they, it wasn't what they expected initially. And it really was uh, jarring. And, and then it completely changed once they just kind of gave themselves to how it moved. Because this is, as it's, it's an intense book, it really requires, I think, I respect the reader a lot. And so I felt like you can't just be in their face all the time about something that's uh, intense and, and complicated and difficult. So I wanted to give the reader pacing for this narrative, but also for them to kind of get, get in touch with their own stories and, and narrative with their own mother. Um, so there was space for all that. Hmm. Um, yeah. So. That's so, so I, interesting. Yeah. So I think instinct is it's it's the narrative that has the instinct, <laughs> and you could say, yeah, okay, yeah, we come back muse. to that. Yeah, but um, the muse has been personified in a way that I, I don't relate to. Um, but I I do think that in some level, it already exists. Yeah. And certainly yeah, that's so fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can yeah. feel it. You can feel it. Um, and it does. You don't feel it right away, but you just have to sort of keep giving yourself to it and see where it's taking you, and then you start to really feel it. Um, yeah, and it's it still gives me kind of chills right now, kind of down my spine, you know, because it's an amazing feeling. Yeah. Um, and you yeah. can you can get off course, and you and then you gradually realize oh, this is dead in the water. I where did I where did I go off? You know. Where did I stop this? Um, where was I rushing through? And that was an that was an area that was an area that really needed to slow down and, mm-hmm. and drop down. Um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we're about halfway through our episode already. We're ripping through, um, <laughs> but I'm wondering if I could get you to read the random poem that you selected. It's called Full Metal. OG Cree. Now he's got some words I'm going to have to slow down with. This is Transsensorium. There are Indo Robo women fighting cowboys on the frontier and winning finally. The pre modern is a foundation for the postmodern. Winter Mute, Tesserae, Ashpool, Armitage. They've Revived us via neuromancy. But I am the neuromancer. When I tell my mother I need kin, she sends me ten. We've all been subjected to zombie imperialism. <laughs> Dying in the sprawl of Night City, Winnipeg, that's WPG. Your world feels ontological. 
because it is this nexus of adaptation and appropriation. The old Aberlardy Lindsay Abraham Lincoln told me that I was too loyal to be my gene line, but the point is that we live. I tell him there is no I in that we, never was. There's no room for white superiority and indigenity. We were surviving. We are surviving. I've nullified your Terra myths. I am more than props and backdrops. I am Terra Filius. You, Neo Columbus, I am Terra full of us. Do non NDNS in space become settlers too? Now is our time to show off our copper skin, shimmer, free fall, headdress and robo-moccasins. This pink and white grid work is my techno beadwork. Our ab abuse value has increased. I'm the punk in a mirror in cyber din. The post-human is innately in me. When novelty is horrific, I tell you, this is the extraterrian. We're not mothers, we're police. The free human becomes the precursor to the res erection. Res, that's cool, res erection. The post-human and the transhuman. So fuck you. Well, survive this too. Like the cat, I have nine times to die. Like the woman, I ask, how can you live so large and leave so little for the rest of us? Question mark. I've outlived colonial virology, slayed zombie imperialism. Us Indians sure are some badass biopunks. We are surviving, thriving, dying to get it right. Very cool. Yeah, and very, I, very that, cool, that should be writ, uh, read with <laughs> quite a bit more force. But um, yeah, it's a great poem. Really, really cool. Um, any anything from this poem stand out to you stylistically or thematically or anything that that really resonates with you? Well, I really like how he keeps turning it on its head, and I like what he's doing with language. Um, so uh, and how he's putting together words like the res erection things like that very good uh really so so much in just doing that so it's it's um parentheses r-e-z parentheses and then u-r-r-e-c-t resurrect um so is you know also i think um gesturing at resurrection so yeah very cool it's i think what i like i like a lot of things about it but i think that it's um it's just turning things on their head over and over again, which is part of the whole process of uh, deconstructing uh, appropriation and uh, racism, um, that you have to go into the language. And in fact, different, but how I can, I'm relating to it in respect is when um, in the um, 80s, late 70s, um, and the relationship I was in then with a, another writer, uh, we wrote the, some of the first lesbian erotic feminist love poems um, and bought out books and traveled across the country reading from these poems. And 
and I was what I did to, to, to somehow find some authenticity and accuracy in the language is I went back to etymology a lot and uh, then used that in, the, in, in terms of working with language in a different way and, re, and, and reclaiming it. Because some, when you go back to words, their roots, the etymological roots in their history, there's a lot more, uh, they're not nearly as one-dimensional. And there's a lot of things that have been erased historically that are still there in terms of where that word came from. So I, 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 I completely think this is, a, he's on it. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit to you about the idea of mentoring. You're, you're a very involved mentor in the writing community. Um, you've, you've worked with a lot of writers. Um, and I wanted to ask a few questions about that and kind of, also get at it from the other side as somebody who's I'm 23 so I'm I'm in writing terms pretty young um and and still trying to do this um I'm wondering I guess what you look for in somebody that you mentor what can you do as a writer to seek out a good mentor um and what does that relationship look like Mm. well I think certainly you want to test it out uh so if you're interested in working with someone you might you know look at a couple of their books or go to them giving a reading or a talk or, um, and see if anybody else that you might know who has studied with that person or been mentored by that person or edited by that person. So you, you'd have to do your research. Um, and, um, when I first came to, in, in Toronto, that's where I was living. I created, a an organization called the Toronto Women's Writing Collective. And we did all kinds of things, publications and um, started a magazine and started uh, writing groups. Um, And so when I came out to uh, Vancouver, I came out with this idea of of organizing uh, uh, Women in Words, La Femme Malemo, which was a, a conference, a three-and-a-half-day conference that brought together women from across the country in um, uh, every aspect of literature, from bookselling to translation to uh, publishers all across the board. It was amazing, a thousand, a thousand women. Never had happened before, never has happened since, but it was a really important turning point for a lot of us. It's the first time the indigenous writers from across the country, not, not from the, the true east, you know, like the East Coast, um, but uh, sort of from a bit from Quebec and on going west came and together and we're at that and, and we had got a, a really strong sense of them first time um, other groups of women writers that had never like the francophone writers um, but it's important to um, find community and that's why I got very interested in uh, when I was asked if I would uh, designed the writer's studio for the SFU, I was very keen to do it because it's changed a lot. It's uh, in some ways in poetry, particularly, I think it's, it's, it's improved. It's way more diverse than when I was first here uh, in every respect. Um, And so, but having community as well as finding someone who can mentor, you need both. You don't, you don't need to do an MFA. I don't, I don't think that's 
that's a, a prerequisite. Um, it works well for some some writers, but other writers that don't want to or they can't afford it or whatever. But you know, there are various ways to pursue it. But I think that. Um, so when I first came here, it was still possible to go to a you know to the bar or to go to a reading. It was the community was small enough and in a sense um, similar enough in terms of background and lifestyle um, that everybody pretty much knew everybody, and you it was easy to kind of say, could you sit down? You know, I'll take you out for a coffee, and could you sit down and look at these two poems? You know, and you, there was this whole kind of, and it was the '60s, '70s kind of sensibility. Let's, you know, let's just do it. Let's just make a new magazine. We need it. Um, so it was quite, uh, it was quite accessible. And then it changed a lot, and to the point where now it's a big community. It's very diverse, and it's um, a lot of people don't know each other uh, at all or very well. So there mm-hmm. is a necessity to get this kind of um, support. And um, someone who can recognize what it is that you can bring to the page that is uniquely what you've got to bring to it. And, and there's a lot of stuff that is kind of like, you know, calisthenics or whatever. You're warming up and getting in shape, but it's not what you really want to, you know, have in your first book. It's, you're just in this very extended long process of learning your your chops earning your chops enough to start really then recognizing what the um, um, the inspiration is and what, how to follow that so um, I don't know if that's any help but there's various ways to find mentors there's various courses and programs um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of there's a lot, a lot of good options in Vancouver here um, but the one-on-one at some point it seems pretty much crucial um, yeah that yeah you get that um interesting yeah very cool um i yeah i just wanted to ask about that i mean you're a very experienced mentor and i'm somebody who um you know i've approached different people uh to help me with editing and talking about stuff in the community and uh i mean i've only been doing this for a little bit but it seems like having a sense of community is essential to a lot of writers um that i've talked to both on the show and beyond so it's, yes, it seems yes. like you're you're hitting on that and and that seems to be shared amongst most writers that are that are doing quite well in the community Um, yes and it's great you're doing this and i love the name (laughs) i really love (laughs) thank you and it's really great you're doing it so that's i think another important thing to 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 keep in mind is what can you offer in return to uh whoever Mm -hmm. it is that you're asking some support or help from um so to do a trade or more and more people, you know, I sometimes make this joke that to be a, um, an author now in Canada, it's almost like having to join an expensive golf club uh, <laughs> that, yeah, that you actually need to put the money out for going to yeah. the writer's studio or, or into a MFA program or going to a retreat or hiring a, a, you know, a mentor to um, sit down and look at your manuscript. Like it's, it's you actually now need to have money uh, in order to hmm. do that and it's hard if you don't um and i yeah. think that's unfortunate but that's how it is mm-hmm. um yeah but do always if you can do a trade and there's often some things that people need help with uh who are further down the road and so you could just say oh, these are the skills i have uh how can we do a trade yeah yeah, yeah. i like that idea very cool 
Um, we're approaching the end of our episodes. We have two more things to do. The first one of which is Yvonne had a question for you earlier. I'm wondering if I can get a question from you for my next guest without knowing who they're going to be because I haven't scheduled anybody yet. <laughs> okay, I've had a chance to think about this a little bit because I listened to a couple of, the, of your podcasts, which I really enjoyed. Um, I think for me, and it's connected a bit with what I just was talking about, um, I just really am still wanting to find ways to um, move the writing I'm I do beyond the literary community um, hmm. and particularly I think with poetry uh, that it, it's still too much to me ends up being within that demographic that's that's who reads the books that's who re- goes to the readings and that's good but I'm really interested in how poetry has functioned in other countries which is a, a, a mainstay for uh, social observation and critique, and uh, like in the, um, there's lots of older countries, and, and to some extent the United States, just where I grew up, that's that's Black Power movement. That was its main vehicle. One of its main vehicles was poetry. Um, uh, feminism. One of its main vehicles was poetry. Uh, so I had some experience on the ground with that, and I just. I think that what's happening in this community here in terms of poetry is really, really good. I just would like to see and figure out how we can move it beyond the poetry world into. Yeah. I, that's what I, so I would just say, how might you do that? Have you thought about that? And how might you be doing that? Um, yeah. And that's yeah, been a question a good... I've been asking myself for quite a long time, decades, actually. Yeah, yeah. it's a really good question. And uh, this is the hard part is usually I turn the question around and ask my guest yes. um, the question they've just asked. But it seems like you've, you've somewhat answered it there. Maybe there's something to getting poetry involved in movements and, and writing for a cause can be a way of, of finding, you know, a necessity for poetry in, yes. in, in society, yes. I guess. Yes. Um, yes. What else can we do, though? Well, you know, I've been involved with it. Was involved with it. It came out now. It's called Rising Tides, and this was a, a, instigated by a York University um, professor, Kate Sandylands, who's in environmental studies and I think women's studies a bit, or maybe it's LGBTQ2S studies. I'm not sure. Anyway, she got a grant to do a, on a gathering on um, Galliano bringing together okay. writers and, and artists and academics and activists, et cetera, to, to put, get out of our silos and actually figure out how we could talk about this uh, in terms of climate change. So that was, that's been, I've been very involved with that. Um, and there have been other things like that that I've been involved with. So I guess it's just to try to keep thinking, how can you spin this? How can you connect the dots in a different way? Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, we are unfortunately at the end of our episode, but I'm wondering before we take off if I could get you to read one more piece from okay. Lost Lagoon, Lost in Thought. All right. Yes, I'm going to read this one. This is number 37. He's crazy as a coot. He's crazy as a coot. On the prairies, this saying also, also always elicited a smile or a chuckle. 
only upon moving to the West Coast and seeing Coots for the first time, did it occur to me that most prairie humans had never seen a coot. On the lagoon, the coots take off in seeming cartoonish fashion. They're extended running across the water's surface, frantic shouting, <laughs> sounds like a mantra. Will I make it? Will I make it? Will I make it? Will I make it? It seems enviably unselfconscious about their anxious production. Shameless, their small black bodies, a series of commas with no period in sight. After a couple of years of living by the lagoon, the human learned the coots lack webbed feet that the other waterfowl have, and this explain, explain their dramatic production of their takeoff. On water, they pumped their heads as they swam and sounded exactly like bathtub toy ducks. On shore, they looked more like chickens strutting on oversized yellow legs with gray-green feet. More than any other bird, the coot convinced the human of the evolution of birds from dinosaurs some 65 million years ago. For the past three years, the human has noticed one coot keeps company with the mallards, although so unlike mallards in build and behavior. The coot is half their size. The human surmised it was left behind during migration but it has remained with the mallards throughout all the seasons for these years and appears to think itself mallard. Had it been abandoned? Orphaned? Was it taken under wing by a mother mallard added to her clutch? For whatever reason, this crazy as a coot emits a feeling so rarely encountered in the public world. Contentment. Very cool. Thank you so much, Betsy, for reading that for us and for chatting with me today. I've really enjoyed uh, having the chance to ask you some questions about the book. Um, again, for listeners, it is Lost Lagoon, Lost in Thought, out now with Caitlin Press. Um, and it is an awesome read. I really enjoyed it. So thank, thank you, you so much for chatting with me today. Bravo, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> So there you have it. That's me chatting with the wonderful Betsy Warland. Um, tons of links down below for you to check out. Uh, you can also go to BetsyWarland.com to find out more about what Betsy is up to. And I cannot recommend enough Lost Lagoon, Lost in Thought, which is out now with Caitlin Press. Uh, thank you to everybody at Caitlin Press as well for uh, helping me get in touch with Betsy and sort of helping to organize today's episode. It was really enjoyable and I had a great time. Um, if you want to listen to more Page Fright, super easy to do. All you have to do is go to anchor.fm slash pagefright. That link's down below. As well, you can check out everything I've been up to at theandrewfrench.com. Um, there's lots of stuff up there. And hey, if you like what I'm doing here, we can, uh, we can make it official. It's super easy. All you have to do is subscribe to the podcast. You can do it on Apple Podcasts. You can do it wherever you're getting this. I'm pretty sure there's a way to do it. Um, you can also review the podcast, which helps people find out about these writers. Uh, and you can do that on Apple uh, Podcasts. It's super easy to do. Um, yeah. That's about it for this week. Uh, again, my name is Andrew French. I'm on Twitter at the Andrew French, and this has been Page Free. Stay safe, everybody.